Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Joshua. And I appreciate uh, Pastors Joshua and John. Uh, I count them good friends that I'm grateful for and I'm thankful for your church. Uh, I've prayed for you often, so I'm glad to see you now and glad to be able to open the Word after one. And I'm going to think about joy in hard times. Uh, that's not something that you get a formula and put it together. You don't read a book and find that. You don't go to a seminar and find that. This is something that Jesus Christ works in us by the gospel, word and spirit, to transform us and make us like himself. Now I want us to think about that as we read God's word and then ponder it this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercies has caused us to be born again to a living hope, we could translate it a lively hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and unreserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Well, Jesus did a lot of unusual things. You know, he walked on water. He fed multitudes. He raised the dead. He touched lepers. But I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about how Jesus lived out true humanity in such a way that distinguished his life from the world. It is in those things, the way Jesus lived out, true humanity, that Christ is being formed in us who are followers of Jesus by word and by spirit so that he brings us into conformity to himself. For instance, and I'll focus just on one of these, this, this matter of joy. Just a few hours before Jesus was betrayed and arrested in a few more hours he was crucified. He told the disciples this. He was John, you see it in John 15. 
He was talking about the branch and the vine. And he said, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, we know that at that point, Jesus felt an immeasurable heaviness. He knew his betrayal was happening. He knew he was going to be arrested, falsely accused. He knew he was going to go to the cross. And in that short time, Jesus would be agonizing in the garden. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He knew all of that. Now just think about it, any other person would be totally distraught, unable to function had they known that they were going to be bearing their own sins, much less the sins of the world. And yet Jesus talked about joy to his followers at that point. Let that grab you. He talked about joy to his followers at at that point, and he knew he was going to be bearing the weight of our sins, and yet moments later he prayed to the Father, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they, his followers, may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus was going to the cross And what was he thinking about for us? That we might walk in his joy. Do you you see what I mean by unusual things? I mean, who thinks of living in joy in the middle of the hardest times? Jesus did. And what Jesus is doing in his redemptive, sanctifying work in his followers is bringing us to experience his joy in hard times. That kind of rest of the world. One of my favorite preachers, never met him, but I've read an awful lot of his sermons and listened to a bunch. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died in 1981. I mean, he was a Welchman. And I remember tucked away in probably several of, of his sermons, he, he said, joy. Think about it, that didn't originate with Lloyd-Jones. That originated with Jesus. Because Jesus modeled this, and it was Jesus who in the most difficult period of his 33 years on earth talked about his joy being in his followers. You remember what the writer of Hebrews said, that we were to fix our eyes upon Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Just as joy marked Jesus, it needs to distinguish us who call ourselves followers of Jesus from the world. You see, the gospel brings us into a Jesus-shaped joy even in the hardest times. And yet that doesn't mean those hard times will be easy. It doesn't mean you don't feel pain. It doesn't mean you don't feel sorrow. It doesn't mean you no longer feel any grief. And I I want us to see that in this text. This is so important for us because we we can become robotic sometimes as Christians thinking, i got to do this and this, and we get ourselves under under bondage, living in guilt because I'm, I'm grieving right now, but I'm supposed to be full of joy. How does all that work together? 
That's what Peter's talking about. He's helping us to see that Jesus forms his life in us by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, applying the gospel to every facet of life. When that happens, we begin to discover little by little this long process of learning how to live in Christ and so live in his joy. So how do you live in joy during the hard times? Well, there are three movements in this text that I want us to think about that help us to see this. First, you learn to live in joy in the hard times when you know whose you are. You know whose you are. Now, Peter's letter was sent to modern-day Turkey, that list of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, were regions in the ancient and some suggest it was sort of a road map starting in Pontus which would have been in the middle of Turkey on uh, around the Black Sea and and then uh, going south into Galatia and then a little more southwest into Cappadocia and then taking Asia on the western coast of Turkey and then ending back up at the Black Sea in Bithynia, near modern-day Istanbul. Now, we don't know if that, if that was the case. He just happened to write it like that. But we do know this. Peter understood the trials and the hardships and the difficulties these followers of Christ that were scattered throughout Turkey. We'll just call it that simpler for us. He knew what they were facing. He understood it. In doing a quick trip through this epistle, I found at least 17 places where Peter indicated some kind of trial and difficulty. I think we could probably expand that even more. He, He spoke of various trials, faith being tested, preparing your mind for action because something's getting ready to happen, fleshly lusts waging war against the soul, slander from the unbelieving community, heavy hands from governing officials, heavy hands from slave owners, hard marriages, suffering for the sake of righteousness, being questioned about faith in Christ, fiery ordeals to test them, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, reviled for the name of Christ, suffering as Christians, and to top it off, suffering at the devil's instigations toward the end of chapter 5. You got the idea that Peter understood that we are going to face all sorts of adversities. And yet, he doesn't give any excuses. He doesn't say, brother, if you'll just get your faith right, you won't have any of these things. That is pure folly. He doesn't complain. He doesn't tell them, just get over it. But rather, he calls them to joy in Jesus amid the hard times. And that joy begins by moving our focus away from ourselves And seeing that we belong to this great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see this in three ways. First, by identification. You'll notice that he calls these Christians aliens. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he's taking language from the Jewish diaspora. You remember that because of God's judgment that the, the people of Israel were scattered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. They were just sent out all over the place. Well, he takes that kind of literal uh, diaspora and 
that spiritually speaking, he says Christians are aliens. We are sojourners. We are strangers. We're foreigners. Not ethnically, not geographically, but spiritually. You remember what Paul told the church in Philippi in ancient Greece, where citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He said, get your focus right. But here's the problem we face, and I appreciate the brother in the prayer of confession because he was alluding to so much of this as he prayed for us and led us that we typically get so immersed in everything around us, political, social, material things bombarding us that we think little of our true citizenship. It's just kind of off our minds. I mean, they always say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And we let that become the tracks upon which our lives are running. And we're following after the things of the world. But Peter is trying to correct our thinking. We are strangers. We are heavenly citizens. And we're to feel the pull of our eternal home if we're to learn to live in Jesus' joy. See that we know whose we are by affection. He says we're chosen. Notice in uh, right at the end of verse 1 and then into verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we struggle with this heavenly citizenship. Let's just plunge a little deeper. We're chosen by God as Jesus' redeemed people. Now, if you're like me, I didn't know a thing about that when I finally heard the gospel and put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. I don't even remember having a discussion about divine election, being chosen by God, until a number of years after I came to faith in Christ. And yet, it is this truth that is meant not to create debates, but to encourage us and to assure us so that we keep pressing on as Christians. Look what Peter says. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what is he beginning to show us? That the triune God, that this God is, has revealed himself, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and this, these members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each exercise an office or a role in our salvation. And it begins by the Father choosing a people for the Son to redeem. And so what is this foreknowledge? I remember hearing folks describing it. Well, God looks down the corridors of time and he sees what somebody will do. And he says, aha, they're going to believe in me, so I'm going to choose them. Think about the logic of that. The eternal, infinite, holy, majestic God who created everything that exists. Being hamstrung, waiting for what we're going to do. Now, does that make any sense? No, of course not. God doesn't sit around and wait on us. We better hope he doesn't. Because we're in very serious trouble if God is dependent upon us. 
Instead, this idea of, uh, of foreknowledge, as J.I. Packer put it, means for love and for a point. And Packer writes, it does not express the idea of a spectator's anticipation of what will spontaneously happen. Now, if you want to see how this word is used, look down in verse 20 in 1 Peter 1. Speaking of Jesus and his redemptive work, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Does that mean that God the Father looked down the corridors of time and said, a son? He's going to, well, he's going to be redeeming people. Of course not. You see how ridiculous that would be? How contradictory it would be to the very nature of God? For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreloved by the Father. And so the Father appointed him that he might appear in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, take that same term and make application of what he's saying here. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The same kind of forelove the Father had for the Son that had existed forever, he applies that same forelove to us. God the Father loving us in the same way that he intimately loves his Son so loves us, his affection for us is so massive that he chooses a bunch of rebels to become his very own. Now, when you start meditating on that, you're going to start finding some joy in the middle of hard times. That's going to be liberating for you. But notice third, we, we understand whose we are by relationship. And this is where he speaks in verse 2 of the sanctifying work of the Spirit obeying Jesus or being brought to obedience to Jesus in the sprinkling of his blood. You see, for relationship to God to happen, for people that are estranged from him, separated from him, at enmity with God, sinners rebelling against him, under condemnation, under judgment, God's got to do something. We're hopeless. We can't change that. I mean, can you lift yourself from estrangement, enmity with God? You're incapable of doing that. None of us can do that. But this is where he acts on our behalf to reconcile us to himself. And so Peter explains the Father chose us according to his forelove by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, trio uh, of our redemptive work as statement of the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood, is almost like taking Romans 1 through 11, that massive doctrinal section in the book of Romans, and putting it in one little sentence. Because what he's doing, he's showing that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart to belong wholly to God. This begins in what is called regeneration, the new birth, being born again, that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit by which he brings our minds that have been darkened and our hearts that have been darkened and our minds that are dead and our hearts that are dead. And he brings us to life 
and he brings us into light so that we begin to see, hear, and understand the gospel, and then we respond to the gospel. The Spirit doesn't regenerate us, though, and leave us alone. That work of regeneration means that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit so that He is continually working in our lives. That is evidence that we belong to Christ. You remember, does not have the Spirit of Christ. He does not belong to Him. And in, in that same chapter, verses 12 through 17, Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit enables us to die to sin, that by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. He leads us. Where does He lead us? To do what we want to do? I don't think so. He leads us to follow after the Lord Jesus. He so works in us that He affects us inwardly with the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. You see, the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in true believers is so certain that apart from that work of the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But when the Spirit is at work, boy, do you belong to Him. And He's continuing to work. And so what happens in this sanctifying work of the Spirit, He says, we respond with what Paul calls in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. Now, we, we tend to want to separate those things, don't we? We got faith over here and we got obedience over here because we're so afraid, and rightly so, that we don't want to confuse a work salvation. Paul was not talking about work salvation. I mean, just read the book of Romans. It's very, very clear. Peter was not talking about work salvation. Just read 1 Peter 1, and there's, there's ample evidence. He was not at all talking about that. But rather, what happens is that when we believe in the Lord Jesus, then the obedience starts kicking in. As a matter of fact, I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that's what you were before Christ, you became obedient from the heart. That's what faith is. The whole thing, legalism, works-oriented, no, you become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching the gospel to which you were committed. It's the same thing that James says is true faith. Not merely professing to believe, but so committing the life and heart to Jesus by faith that obedience becomes primary. And then he says, you're sprinkled with his blood. You believe in him. That heart obedience begins to operate and he has sprinkled you with his blood. In this same chapter in 1 Peter, Peter says in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Do we often pause and consider whose we are brothers and sisters no wonder when we slip into complaining and ingratitude and despondency we ponder the great love and grace of God by which the sanctifying work of the spirit has brought us into a lively obedience of faith in Christ so that we're sprinkled with his blood now that idea of sprinkling comes out of Exodus 24 you remember when 
Moses led the people of Israel into making a covenant with the Lord and he slew the sacrificial animals and then he did something that would be very awkward for us. He sprinkled blood upon the people. That blood was showing that they were now under this covenant with the Lord God. So much more, and we'll, we'll enact that to some degree later in the Lord's Supper. So much more. We've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ because he's brought us into a new covenant which he has taken upon himself the whole burden of our salvation, the whole burden of our life so that we might live life in him. That's why in verse, after finishing verses 1 through 5, Peter can say, in this you greatly rejoice. Joy follows when we keep focus that in Jesus Christ we belong to God. So joy in hard times begins when you know who you are. Second, Joy in hard times begins to work into our life when you live, live in what God has done. And we see this beginning to unfold for us in verse 3. Notice how he begins with doxology. Blessed, oh how happy, how wonderful, how glorious. This, this is a, a festive kind of word. He's telling us about living in joy by doxology, by worship. And so he's calling for happiness. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Celebrate him with humble, grateful reverence and joy for all that he has done in his saving work. But notice three emphases that he gives us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. The first thing we see is a merciful new birth. Now, Peter's amplifying what he's already done in verses 1 and 2. He's continuing his Trinitarian unpacking of our salvation. He talks about the Father's great mercy. Why mercy? Because we deserve judgment. I mean, if you think, yeah, but I'm an exception. No, you're not. You're kidding yourself. We're living under judgment. We're, We're condemned right now. Read John 3. We're we're living under condemnation. And unless God works in the new birth, we remain condemned. This is the mercy of God. And Peter calls it great mercy, religious leader among the people of the Jews. And he said in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He told this, this man who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, who had memorized massive portions of the scripture, who could talk about all kinds of doctrines. He said, Nicodemus, you are helpless before God. Did you ever feel that? I mean, th- those individuals who, who hear the gospel and say, well, I'll consider this later on. They don't realize their helplessness before God. They're kidding themselves. No, Nicodemus, you are helpless You've got to be born again. Nicodemus could not make himself right before God. He had no power to do that. He could not birth himself into God's kingdom. And so Jesus told him, you've got to be born again. He said, something supernatural has got to to happen to you. You've got to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, this is necessary. You must be born again. If Jesus said that, Jesus said something must happen we need to stop and pay attention to that. 
And he said, Nicodemus, we're helpless before God. He said, as he describes the new birth, the wind blows where it wishes, in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he said that to a man that Jesus called the teacher of Israel, the prime teacher in that nation. And yet Nicodemus didn't understand the new birth. Jesus let him know that this mysterious work of God brings dead hearts and minds to life because of God's great mercy. You see, you do not believe in order to get born again. You're born again so that you might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why salvation is all of mercy, all of grace. And if that's the case, and if God has shown that kind of mercy, shouldn't joy begin to peek out of our lives? Shouldn't that affect us? That he's shown mercy to sinners? But notice a a second way that we are to live in what God is doing, and that is in a resurrection hope. And so, who according to his great mercies caused us to be born again to a living hope, a lively hope through the resurrection, through the resurrection from the dead, reorients the whole of our lives, even in hard times. Now, we use the word hope quite differently than the way Peter is using it. We may say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope, hope we eat pizza tonight. You know, we, we hope for all kinds of things. But that has nothing to do with the biblical term. This word means a confident expectation. And two things about it. Hope is grounded in the promises of the gospel. So if you want to know what is the, the scope of my hope, it is found in what Jesus has promised in the gospel. And then second, what is the certainty of that hope? God raised Jesus from the dead. And he said, if Jesus is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, then all that he has promised, he has secured for us in his death and resurrection. All of that is, that is found in the gospel, that scope of the hope is found because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so he says, count on it. Learn to live in that hope. Learn to depend upon it. Learn to live in the light of it. That's biblical hope. But when we think of the hopelessness and despair of multitudes around us, that radiant resurrection hope of believers ought to set us apart. The world doesn't have that hope. The things Pastor Joshua mentioned earlier in, in, his, in his prayers, interceding. I mean, think about the multiple mass shootings in the last two weeks. Think about the hundred days of carnage in the Ukraine. Think about how the residual effect of all the basket of that part of the world. Think about that loss of all of that and all the change in prices and oil and all that and how it has trickled down and increased starvation in some countries in Africa. Think about how all that stuff's happening. People are living by in, in despair. Think about how we just reel over the hearing about another young person committing suicide. You see, despair grips the world. But we've been born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, joy in resurrection hope takes place when we live in what God has done for us in Christ. But third, in living in what he has done for us is this certain eternal inheritance. You see this in verses 4 and 5. He says he, he's caused us, he has caused us to be born again. Notice, he's the instigator in that. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He said, but what if I mess up? To you who are protected by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you, do you see what he's doing? That the keeping power of God is at work and that keeping power begins to work its way to manifest itself in the way we exercise our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the grammar in this is, is a, a divine passive, as it's often called, and it's implying that God, by his infinite power, is keeping us and keeping what Christ has secured for us, and nothing can alter that. It is not our faith that keeps us. It is God's power that keeps us. But as faith in Christ matures and grows, so does our unbridled joy in knowing that we're kept by the power of God. He preserves us so that we might persevere, so that we might continue on in the faith until that day that we see Jesus face to face. You see, Peter calls this what Christ has given to us an inheritance. Now, the Jews were big on inheritance. You remember, it was about the land. And yet that land was not eternal. I mean, it faced storms and erosion and wars, literally changing the landscape of that land. But not so with this inheritance. He says it's imperishable. It can't rust, can't blow away, can't rot. Nobody can steal it. No one can conquer it. It is undefiled, which means it cannot be stained. It cannot be tarnished by evil or wrong motives or deceit. And it will not fade away. Its beauty is so magnificent that it can never be tarnished, diminished, or dulled. Now, I want you to see what he's doing. He's trying to get us who are so earthbound and so caught up in all the things around us to see that God in Christ has given us something that is imperishable, undefiled, and is so magnificently beautiful, it will not fade away. He's wanting us to learn to think about that because that affects our joy. If you see the magnificence, that affects our joy. Is said to be reserved or preserved that we may know that it is beyond the reach of danger. For if we were not in God's hands, it might be exposed to endless dangers. I mean, think about how we hear families squabbling over inheritance, somebody dying, and is because I don't know when's the fight going to start. So, someone that has a small inheritance trying to grab the other person's small inheritance, somebody with a large inheritance is greedy and trying to grab more and more. But there's no such evil 
going on with our inheritance. There's no ugliness. There's no corruption. It's massive. It is so perfect that there's far more to go around for all to whom it is promised. And while we might think of golden streets and rooms prepared for us in the Father's house, the true inheritance is the object of the Father's love, Jesus himself. Think about how Paul talked about our this inheritance being found in our union with Jesus in Ephesians 1.11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, the object of the Father's love. And this inheritance is enjoyed with the saints forever. Uh, Colossians 1.11 and 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this inheritance is described as in Ephesians 1.18, as the riches of the glory of his, Jesus' inheritance in the saints, so that Jesus views the church as his eternal inheritance. Now, here's what's going on. And Jesus treasures us. On those days where things are getting really hard, and you're struggling, and you're suffering, Jesus treasures his people. And his people treasure him. And we're to meditate on that treasure of treasures as those who are kept by the power of God. Uh, Karen and I are, are reading through John Owen's um, work uh, called Spiritual Mindedness. John Owen was one of the great Puritans. And he, he points out about what does it mean to be spiritually minded so that we mature in our joys even in hard times. To do that, we've got to learn to meditate on Jesus. You, you see, what I'm talking about this morning is not some kind of overnight achievement. We don't just say, hey, I went to church today. I've learned all this stuff, and I got it. It's in. No, it's honed, and as Peter says, the hard times. So those hard times, the suffering, those bad diagnoses, those losses, those rough things that are going on, those times that we've been harassed and harangued for being Christians, what he's doing, he's honing our faith. He's sharpening us. And, and Owen says, it is no wonder we have such little experience of the power of this holy fellowship with Christ when we spend so little time thinking of him. And he recommends we must meditate on the glory of Christ as he is both God and man in one person. In times of suffering, thoughts of Christ at God's right hand will be of great comfort. Understatement, John Owen. Yes, he's the one who died for us is at the Father's right hand. You're going through affliction and suffering? Praise be to the Lord. That gives us encouragement. And he says, when our, where our minds are filled with the thoughts of the glory that shall be revealed, we shall cheerfully walk every path that leads to suffering. If we would find joy in Christ, even in hard times, we must learn to regularly think on him, meditate on him who died and rose again and who ascended, who seated at the Father's right hand, who is there on our behalf, who reigns as Lord, and one day will return for his people. It is that kind of eternal hope in certain inheritance that lines our attitudes with joy. But the third thing we see, if we would know this 
this the Lord. We uh, learn to live in what He has done, but doing what He is doing now. And so you you know to whom you belong. You know about the the Father's electing love, the Spirit sanctifying work, the Son sprinkling with His blood. We're learning to live in what God has done in this merciful new birth, in the resurrection hope that is in Christ, and God keeping us for an eternal inheritance. Then as that begins to work into us, we are able to rejoice in what God is doing in our lives presently. In other words, if you have the foundation of the saving work of God in Christ and the eternal promises secured for you by the gospel, then you view what is happening in your life at present in a way that leads to joy. This means even in hard times, even when suffering comes, when there is illness and when there is loss, when you're mocked and when you're ridiculed, when you lose your job because of your faith in Christ, when you're ostracized, when you're ignored by others in relation. The certainty that we belong to Jesus because of all the triune God has done to reconcile us as his beloved people, we begin to find joy even in loss. That's what Peter's teaching us. Now, how does that work out? Let me show you two things. First, the Lord orders the details. If you don't see this, you're going to begin to wonder where is God. He's right in the middle of everything. You see, Peter's making the point in verses 6 through 9. He, he's laying this theological groundwork. He's given this, this doxological worship framework saying in, in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. In this what? In this that you are in Christ by the mercy of God, by God's doing. In this, because God is working a hope in you in Jesus Christ. He said, in this you greatly rejoice. He's teaching us good theology leads to worship. Without good theology, you're not going to worship. You can go through motions, and people do that. They kind of get, get into it. They get into the liturgy, whatever it may be. But that good theology working in us is overflowing in spirit and in truth, as Jesus taught in John 4. This Christ, in a lively way, is working in us. It leads to worship. But notice that this frame of joyful worship that Peter describes is right in the middle of going through trials. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, it's an important term here, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. You remember how Paul talked about in Romans 8 that the suffering in this present world could not be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Now, similarly in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he talks about this momentary light affliction is far outweighed by the glory that lies ahead. Now, does this mean we ignore trials that we're in? That we're oblivious? Or as I heard one person saying, 
don't, don't count it. When you get a terminal diagnosis, it's pretty real. When you lose your job because you're a Christian, that's pretty real. When your spouse abandons you, that's pretty real, isn't it? I love the way how Calvin very pastorally said, the faithful are not blocks of wood. Think about that old 16th century guy saying that. The saints are not blocks of wood, nor have they so divested themselves of human feelings, but that they are affected by sorrow, fear, danger, and fear, poverty as an evil, and persecutions as hard and difficult to be borne. We feel them. We're distressed by them. They pain us. They bring grief and sorrow into our lives. And yet right in the midst of it, there is this majesty of who we are in Christ and this majesty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he's working that in us so that right in the middle of the trials and adversities, we know his joy. Odd way to try to help you visualize this, but about 20 years or so ago, I had a group of socialism, and we were driving through the Italian, French, and Swiss Alps, where they all converge. There's a big mountain there, the biggest mountain in, in Europe, Mont Blanc, and there's a tunnel that goes through it. And so I love mountains. They just carry me away when I see them. I can't stop staring at them because of the majesty and magnificence and beauty. And so... I'm, I'm driving this VW van going up this road toward the Mont Blanc Tunnel, and there's mountains on the left, mountains on the right, and right in the middle, there are 30 to 40 mile an hour, and I think sometimes bigger than that, gust of wind. My knuckles were just as white as could be. I was gripping that steering wheel, just trying to grow up. And, you know, how can I make it? Am I going to be able to get through this tunnel? What am I going to do when I get in this tunnel? I mean, I was struggling, but I was overwhelmed because there was majesty on both sides. Sometimes in the middle of our trials, we feel it. We feel those wind gusts. But because the majesty is there, who we are in Christ, what God is doing in us, we're able to keep pressing on. That's what Peter's describing for us. Notice that he tells us the Lord orders the hard times. The Lord orders the suffering. That's what he means by if necessary. This is implying a divine necessity in our lives in order to bring us into tasting and experiencing his glory. He's far more concerned about that than our comfort. We're concerned about our comfort, right? We, we want to be comfortable with his glory. Look what he says. Because suffering becomes the divine means to a God purpose in. He said, so that the proof of your faith, so in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. You're not a wooden block. You're feeling you're distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ brings us into conflict with the world. It tests and proves the genuineness of our faith as we begin to respond. I mean, is it a stretch to assert 
that the degree by which we live in a fallen world means we're always going to have something testing our faith. Are we going to respond by trust and worship or are we going to respond by unbelief and complaining? Gold was refined and purified in the fire, but gold's not eternal. That's what Peter points out. This gold is perish. You are eternal because of the work of Christ in your life. And he says, as the Lord begins to work in your life, in the middle of these hard times, and he's working his glory and his joy in you, then at the appearing of Jesus, you've got praise, glory, and honor to heap upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Thoughts that the trials ordered by the Lord refine our faith so that we will have more praise, glory, and honor to pour out upon the returning Christ, then we will begin to persevere with joy in the midst of hard times. None of this will make sense without knowing whose we are and without living in what God has done in saving us. The second thing is the Lord is bringing you into joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what he says, verses 8 and 9. This, he said, this is what God is doing. He shows you himself. He shows his great mercy. He works trials into our lives because he's got some bigger purpose than our comfort. And he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. These are people that are going through trials. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, cast upon a strong Savior, the Lord Jesus. We look to Him. We learn to love Him with our whole hearts. Is it a perfect faith? No. Weak faith. Strong Savior. Struggling faith. Steady that faith is enough because of the regenerating work of the Spirit that has worked that faith into your life. So that by faith, we love and trust Him. By faith, we're learning to live in His gospel promises. By faith, we're thinking of His choosing and calling us through the gospel. By faith, we're filled with gratitude for the Holy Spirit regenerating us and continuing to sanctify us. By faith, we're overwhelmed about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ by which we have been given a, a, a hope that never ends and we're eternally kept by the power of God in Christ. By faith, we're learning to meditate upon these truths, to let them splash over our lives when things are calm and easy so that when the hard times come, we don't get unglued. We keep resting. We've learned to set our heart on Christ. We're seeing him as our all in all. We're learning that as we live in Christ and we live in what God is doing, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Just a few days ago, a wonderful Christian man, and I said, Bill is rejoicing with a joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining the outcome of his faith, the salvation of his soul. You see what the Lord is doing? The joy of Jesus is working in a, even in the middle of hard times. And this is what Peter is doing. He's giving us a roadmap for how to live in a fallen world with weaknesses, suffering, sickness, death, persecution, disease, loss, abandonment, 
bigotry, abuse, neglect, war, hardships of everything imaginable. Does God remove those pains? I mean, we ask him to. It's okay to ask him to. Paul did that, didn't he? And the Lord said, no, not going to do it. I'm going to show you something better. Let that grab you out of 2 Corinthians. Let, let that grab you. I'm going to show you something better. And Paul said, I would rather have this weakness so that I might know his grace. We may not be there yet. That's okay. He had a little, little more time on us. Keep growing. Keep maturing. He, as citizens not of this world but of another, are waiting for something far better. And in the meantime, as we wait and maybe even suffer while waiting, the Lord is giving us his joy. And remember, it's the same joy that Jesus talked about right before he got betrayed, arrested, and went to the cross. That's that same joy. You see that connection? Joy inexpressible, full of glory, belongs to those who belong to Christ. Is this joy working in, in you? can only work in you if you come to faith in Christ. And if you come to faith in Christ, then you, I hope, are growing in knowing who you are. And you're growing in learning what God has done for you in Christ. So that now, even in the hard times... You're not a block of wood. You feel the hard times. But you're learning to rejoice with joy in Christ. That's what the gospel calls us to. Let's pray together. Perhaps some among us have not come to put your faith and trust in Christ. You may say, what you've said today is very weird, very odd. But there's something about it that interests me. I hope that something is someone Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, to bring us into life and joy in him. Christ has done that. Will you turn to him? Maybe even in these moments, the Holy Spirit has opened the gospel for the first time, and you would believe in him. Turn to him. Let one of these brothers and sisters around you know and let them pray with you and rejoice with you. Maybe as a Christian, you're going through some kind of... Anyone here except Joshua and my wife and daughter that are here, I don't know what you're going through. But I know in, this, in the middle of this, some of you are going through some hard times. Think on these things. To whom do you belong? What is he working in you? Now, as he is working in you, what is he doing now, even in hard times, to bring you into his joy? Father, we pray that you will enable us to set our affections, thoughts, our hearts upon you, to rely upon you, to know that you as our triune God are all sufficient, to know that even in the middle of hard times, you work your joy in us. I pray for these dear brothers and sisters. Help them to see that, to know that, to grow in that. Help us as we partake of the supper to be able to reflect upon him who gave himself for us, who offered himself in that bloody death and rose from the dead so that we might know him, that we might think upon him who on the night 
before he died, he was talking about his joy being made full in his people. And we pray that you would work that in us. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. When trials come, when I'm weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross. So in its shadow I shall run till you complete the work begun. Till you complete the work begun. Amen. Let's sing.